Good morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time that you've given us to come and worship you together and learn more about you. Father, I ask today for me personally that you would get me out of the way completely and speak through me and say all the things that it would be that you would have your people to hear. So we love you. Thank you for this beautiful morning. In your son Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. So let's go back to our text. 1 Peter 3, starting 19, but we'll read 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. If I'm too loud, let me know and I can tone it down a little bit. Last Sunday, we spent much time understanding the background and backstory. Our author assumed his readers and hearers already knew. We had to understand as much as we could in the same way that the first hearers understood. We needed to see the same vivid mental picture that Peter's hearers saw when they heard about these spirits in prison. Firstly, we had to properly identify them, because without proper identification, we cannot understand the text rightly. That is why a quick summary would not suffice last week. We had to pin down those pesky spirits in prison with texts like Jude, 2 Peter, and Genesis, and based on those texts and sound reasoning, we were safe to induce with high probability that these spirits were angels that during the time of Noah took human wives and had unnatural hybrid giant offspring. Strange. But we didn't stop there because our picture was not fully painted. We had vague outlines, but it wasn't fully colored in. And that is where the non-canonical book of Enoch came in and colored in our picture so very much as to give us a framework for understanding the beginning part of this text. We had to understand how very pertinent and germane the story was and is to understanding what our author is trying to communicate. We poured the supernatural footers so that we could frame up our understanding of the following verses. We know that the content in the book of Enoch filled the minds of the original hearers. And we'll be using this resource available to our original audience again today so as to make more sense of their assumption. But this can be hard. As in many ways, we, I, have become conditioned to expect a quick exposition of the text, coupled with engaging, relatable rhetoric, followed by three pithy application points. Sometimes we incorrectly assume that if we don't have an emotional high or a delivery that animates to quick action and application, then we haven't had church. 
Those things are good and helpful when appropriate, but some texts force us to dig deep and force us to test our exegetical range. I admit, when, when looking at this text, I thought to myself, it would be much easier not to follow it, frame up some points and get a theme and go from there. But we're going to be following verse by verse because it's the only way we can understand. Because there are certain truths of the Bible that when we learn them, we soak them in. We let them marinate through and work in us until they reach the core of our being and knowing. They found and prove our faith so that we cannot be moved. That is what Peter's getting at here. We come here to mind the truth of the word, walk into the forest and examine the trees, and then the branches, and then the leaves, so that we can grow in awe of our God and his revelation to us. So much had to be taught and explored before application can be made. And again, this is certainly one of those times, quite a text. When Peter tells us that these spirits whom Jesus went to proclaim to in Sheol, what they were, it meant something very powerful. And we'll discover the power of that shortly. But before we move forward, let's do a quick summary of last week so we can follow the context of our text under consideration. Quickly, we know about the angels that transgressed and took human wives. We know that this sin of taking human wives and giving birth to hybrid offsprings resulted in the Nephilim or giants or Giborim. Keith, thank you for that. We know that these angels and their hybrid offspring contributed to the wickedness on the earth. And the book of Enoch has much more to say about this, but not necessarily for our purposes today. But suffice it to say, they taught and propagated so much sin and wickedness, coupled with the sinful fallen nature of our own human hearts, that the flood had to come to destroy all of creation, but a few. And thanks to the book of Enoch, we've considered we know that these angels were punished by being imprisoned until the day of judgment in chains in Tartarus, the place of the dead, Sheol, Hades, synonymously. We know Enoch was taken to the place of the dead, and he was also proclaiming Yahweh's message of doom, doom to these angels that God was to put in chains in Tartarus. So that makes quick sense of what Peter assumed his readers saw in their minds when he made this statement. But them knowing that backstory of what happened in Genesis 6 in the book of Enoch wasn't the most important thing he was communicating. The power inherent in his statement belongs to his telling us that Jesus went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. The power lies in what we will term biblical typology. Biblical typology. Some of us have heard of this, but let's explore it. To make sense of all that Peter is about to tell us, we must understand biblical typology. Typology is the study of the interpretation of types and symbols. A prophecy, we know what prophecy is. A prophecy is a spoken or written proclamation of something that is going to happen in the future, right? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Elijah prophesied that dogs would eat the wicked queen Jezebel. And sure enough, as he said it, it was fulfilled as dogs ate her dead body by the walls of Jezreel. 
Jeremiah says that Jerusalem will be conquered. And, as he said, Jerusalem was conquered. Isaiah said the Messiah will be crushed and striped. And our Lord and Savior Jesus fulfilled those verbal utterances to a T with his crucifixion. So we understand written and spoken prophecy in its fulfillment, but biblical typology, biblical typology is just as powerful. It's all throughout the Old Testament, but we have to dig a little deeper to pull it out to understand it. So we probably no doubt heard of Christ showing up in the Old Testament in numerous shadows and types. Hebrews and Romans give us these categories of understanding the actual words that we've just used. But we all know what this means. And to prove it, we'll talk about it. But a type is a nonverbal thing, or institution, or event, or person that prefigures something in the future. Types are a representation, a portrayal of something that is to come. A type is a template or a mold that we find in events and persons that point to a literal fulfillment in the future. A type or a shadow or a pattern or a figure is a prophetic foretelling of future events. It's a pre-echo. Or it could be seen, as I was thinking, as a father that is so excited about what he's about to do for his kids that he drops hints for him, right? He's dropping hints because he can't stand it. A father who is preparing his child for what is about to happen. The type points to something greater. Technically the ultimate or the anti-type. Peter is working to show us that all he is saying in this text is typifying our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When understanding Jesus in the Old Testament as a shadow, we certainly can understand that illustration, a shadow. So when light shines on an object or a person, it creates a shadow. Now, we know the shadow is cast away from the person or object itself. Right here, Justin's shadow is away from him. But that is to say you can tell something about the object that is casting the shadow by looking at the shadow. But you cannot see the full detail, the beauty, and the intricacy of the person or object itself. You just see the shadow. So my wife casts a lovely shadow. But the fullness of her beauty I do not see without looking at her brown eyes and beautiful smile face to face. The Old Testament is full of shadows and types of the full beauty, which is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And these five verses are massively pregnant, massively pregnant with typological implications. So many that we would be here forever if we mined them all. So we're going to have to stick to the verses today. Peter is presenting us with a typological smorgasbord. And to understand this is to take what seems, what seems like a hodgepodge of ideas and characters, what looks on the surface like a blurry, kind of haphazard painting with many different colors evident, and we make it clear. Make it perspicuous. What looks like some stuff flung onto a canvas, when we look at through the lens of typology, our picture becomes a clear, beautiful, rich masterpiece. 
So now we have our categories. We know several Old Testament events and people that prefigure Jesus already, don't we? We already know about types. And when we think about biblical types, we often think of those that are easiest to call to mind. I know you're thinking of them right now. Christ, Jesus, our Passover lamb, the lamb that was slaughtered. The lamb that was slaughtered whose blood covered the doorposts of the Israelites, their homes as they made haste to leave Egypt, and the angel of death passed over. That Passover lamb was conveying the true Passover lamb whose blood covers the sins of those who place their trust in him, Jesus. This is a type and shadow of what was to come in him. The Passover lamb itself was always a type and shadow of Jesus. Or one more example before we move on. Romans 5, we think of Romans 5, where Paul actually gives us the word typos, type, when explaining Adam as a type of Christ. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, a type, a shadow, a prefigurement of the one who was to come. Paul's helping us understand typology so that we can think through what we're thinking through today. Adam was a type of Christ. Paul explicitly tells us that in Romans, because he sees the Old Testament rightly, all of the Old Testament testifies of Jesus Christ. So Adam is a type of Jesus, and Paul is saying the person of Adam tells us something. Adam disobeyed and throws all creation into sin, death, and curses them as our representative head. The second Adam, the greater Adam, Jesus, our representative head, never sinned. He lived a perfect life according to the law of God. And Jesus obeys and reverses this curse, bringing life to us and creating all things new, including us. So what Adam should have done and didn't do, Jesus did. Therefore, Jesus is the better Adam, the ultimate, the anti-type. And we talked last week, and we know that Jesus says, all the law and the prophets testify of me. Not just the portions that are specifically spoken prophetically, but the entire Old Testament. Persons, events, and themes, places, all point to Christ. Every bit of it, every bit of it, coheres and finds its all in all in Him. So, that brings us to the reason why we've labored to establish the book of Enoch last week as something the original readers would have read. We met its main character in the Old Testament. But its second temple non-canonical book gives us much more detail about him for our purposes. And we gave as much summary of the important events that Peter assumes so that we could understand Enoch as a type and a shadow himself. Like Adam, Enoch was a type of the one who was to come. His person and story tells us something. It communicates. It's a pattern, a mold, a template. Enoch, that much considered already book, gives us more information. 
It gives us the shadow cast by the greater Enoch. So we all know the Old Testament verse, Enoch walked with God and was not, right? He loved righteousness and hated sin. And we find him in the pre-flood world. And he tells us much about the wickedness that prevailed upon the earth. And he lamented, hated this reality. Because of his love and obedience to Yahweh, he was taken up into heaven. So, for our purposes today, here again we have Enoch coloring in our picture for us. Sheol, the place we worked hard to establish last week, the place where he visited, and Jesus also descends into, is introduced to us in the book of Enoch. Not only does Enoch give us vivid, very vivid descriptions of the place of the dead, he also gives us detailed descriptions of the final conquering of the Messiah. An extremely vivid detail. Much of which even parallels the Apostle John's revelation. And we'll use the book of Enoch again to understand a little more about Sheol as the receptacle of the departed spirits. The spirits of the souls of the dead that reside there. And again, in the book of Enoch, our main character is taken into Sheol. This place has been made to hold the departed spirits of the righteous and the unrighteous. Both. And it gets very, very interesting. Because as Enoch looked around, he described what he saw. And here's what he saw. This place of departed souls is separated. On one side you have the righteous, and on the other you have the wicked. On the side of the righteous, there is a brightness and a bright spring of water. And contrarily, on the opposite side, the wicked are found to be in pain and torment. The wicked and the righteous are separated by a great chasm that could not be crossed. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Wicked, righteous, separated by a great chasm that could not be crossed. Is there any other story that we remember where we have a separation of the righteous and unrighteous? Maybe even where they're separated by a great chasm. In that same story, is there someone who is positioned on one side who is in torment, looking across the dividing line at someone in rest and repose in the bosom of Abraham, the father of the righteous? Certainly we do. Jesus, telling us of the rich man and Lazarus. Many take this story to be a parable. Or an illustration invented by our Savior to make a moral point. But it seems as if Jesus is also speaking of a place his listeners also knew of well. Because they too knew what we just considered. They knew that Jesus' description matched the one that they had already heard of. So let's review Sheol and our content from last week. Enoch took the message of Yahweh to the disobedient angels in Sheol. Those who sinned, transgressed. He let them know that they would be confined to chains in the underworld. And on the last day they would face their final judgment that would be dealt out by the Messiah according to his vision. So he's declaring judgment to these wicked actors and those wicked inhabitants in Sheol. 
And at the same time, simultaneously, seeing the conquering of the Messiah, the Son of Man, Son of God, who gives His elect everlasting life. And again, the book of Enoch was widely known in the first century. And this has the prophet seeing the end of history. That being judgment for the wicked and blessing for the righteous. All carried out by the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. So Enoch saying, you're doomed and that doom will be secured for you and all the unrighteous at the last day when the Messiah enforces this verdict. That's what our author's calling to mind when he said Jesus went to the spirits in prison and condemned them. Peter's saying, listen, Enoch was an imperfect shadow of the greater Jesus. Enoch typified Christ. When Jesus went down to the dead, he fulfilled this typological prophecy. Fulfilled it. So let's look at the shadow of Enoch and the fullness of Christ. Enoch descended into the place of the dead. Jesus dies on the cross and in the spirit descends to the place of the dead. Enoch gives the verdict of punishment to the angels that took human wives and added wickedness on the earth. Jesus finds those same disobedient angels in Tartarus and he proclaims the same verdict. He lets them know. He puts them on notice. Fellas, I'm here. And the song remains the same. He finds those same angels that sinned. And he says, I have conquered all the spiritual wickedness and depravity you had a hand in propagating, I will forever do away with. And you, you will be punished for it. So the same message Enoch brought to you from the Father, I'm relaying again. I've sealed the deal. My coming here puts the proverbial nail in your proverbial coffin. I will ultimately be putting a final end to all of it. Wickedness, demons, sin, and death itself. I will see you at the end of history when I throw you and all those other workers of iniquity into the lake of fire. And Jesus leaves, and when he leaves, he takes the keys to the place with him. It's his, and he'll do away with it completely. This question usually arose in my own mind, but when Jesus was there, were the angels the only ones that Jesus had a message for when he descended into Sheol, Hades? I don't think so. I believe that he gave hope and victory to all those who by faith resided in the bosom of Abraham, assuring the saints awaiting their resurrection of his victory and also proclaiming condemnation to the wicked. This is speculation, of course, as the text does not tell us explicitly because Peter is trying to get us to see the typological connection, not give us a complete summary. But we'll know someday. We'll know. Let's look more at the shadows that point to Christ in the person of Enoch before we move on. Enoch leaves Sheol and returns to earth. Jesus leaves Sheol with the keys to the place, returns to earth, resurrects, and walks around on the earth for 40 days. Enoch loved the Father. He walked in obedience and righteousness. 
The father loved Enoch, and he was taken up into heaven to be with God. And Jesus, the perfect son of God, who loved the father perfectly, the one who never sinned, so that he could be the spotless lamb who takes away our sin, the father loved him. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus conquered, and he ascended into the heavens to be with the Father. So we see what Peter wants us to see in verse 19. We see Jesus as the better Enoch, telling all the spiritual world of his victory and their defeat. And through his resurrection, telling the world of the living that he also has the victory. The story of Enoch, Jesus recapitulates. Enoch was a template of what was to come, and Jesus fulfills it. We understand it. We can draw the parallels. We see the connection that Peter is drawing between Enoch and Jesus. But what does he want us to understand about baptism? What does he want us to know about baptism? We've already seen in Enoch, he was a type, and we saw his pre-flood part to play. But now Peter takes us chronologically to the next chapter in the story, Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood. 20, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Well, what does baptism correspond to exactly? In which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What corresponds to our being brought safely through water. Our being brought safely through water. Now we know, and I said I wish we could stay here all day and talk about this, but we know the Old Testament has several examples of God judging disobedience with water. And they all come to mind, I know, right now as I'm speaking. We have the disobedient and wicked not being brought safely through water. And we can think of some examples. But Peter here gives us the most obvious example. 20 and 21. Noah and the flood. Because those angels that Enoch and Jesus proclaimed judgment upon did not obey in the days of Noah and fan the flames that already existed in sinful men's hearts, this combination was a catastrophe, a catastrophe of epic proportions. So much wickedness and evil was everywhere that man's thoughts and his intentions were only wicked and evil continually. Judgment had to come, and it did come. God drowned all living things on the earth. God went about decreating. A creation reversal was about to occur. But Peter tells us that our baptism corresponds to Noah and his family being brought safely through water. Noah, one just man who found favor with God was given a task. He was told to build a boat to survive the coming flood of God's wrath. 
And he obeyed. He obeyed the will of the Father. Noah obeyed and set about doing the task that the Father had him to complete. He was told what he must do to save the ones he loved. But Noah was not the only person who was brought safely through destruction, was he? Noah's entire family was spared the wrath of God. All of them. Why? Well, the text tells us that Yahweh saw that Noah was righteous before his face, but he says nothing about his wife and their sons, let alone their sons' wives, does he? But his entire family was saved from the waters of death because of their identification with Noah. They belonged to him. They were his household. Therefore, they were brought safely through the waters of judgment. Because of their being united with Noah, Noah brings all those that belong to him through the waters of judgment to renew creation, awaiting them on the other side. So 2 Peter and Matthew 24 tell us that these floodwaters are a prefigurement or a type, a shadow of the final judgment that will occur at the last day. We know this. But where's Jesus in this story? That's the question. Where's Jesus? Well, here, as Peter was doing with Enoch, he does the same with Noah. Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus, the only perfectly righteous God-man, favored and loved by the Father, was given a task. He was told what he must do to save those whom he loved from the judgment that is to come. And he obeyed. And he set about doing the task that the Father would have him complete. He obeyed the will of the Father. And in so doing, he himself, he himself became our refuge from the judgment which is to come. All those identified with Christ, all those united with him, find refuge in him, our shelter from the storm. They will be saved and spared, brought safely through the fiery lake of judgment that is to come. Not only does the greater Noah bring us through the waters of judgment, but bringing us through, he brings us to a renewed creation. In one, there is no death, there's no suffering or tears. One where we will enjoy forever, for all eternity, the refulgent beauty of the presence of God, as Adam did. And we'll walk with the greater Adam in the cool of the day. Now, we're only brought safely through because the greater Adam, greater Enoch, greater Noah, took the wrath of God that we deserved 
upon Himself on the cross. We know what we deserve. We deserve to be pounded by wave after wave after wave of God's wrath for our sin. Jesus calls His own death that we should have died. Him being inundated in the wrath of God, He calls it a baptism. Luke 12, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Mark 10, 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized? Jesus is baptized in the waters of judgment that should have engulfed us. May we think about that. He was baptized in wrath, took it on himself so that those who are identified and united with Him will not. They will not. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. This is not baptismal regeneration, and we can talk further about that later. We're not saved by the working of the works or by the baptism itself, but rather our baptism signifies our identification and proclamation that we are in Christ and identified with Him. Your baptism is a sign pointing to who you identify with. As those of Noah's family were saved by their being united with Noah, so too are you saved by being united with Jesus. And this is your appeal to God, saying, I believe all that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has accomplished for me. I'm united with him. I identify with him. This is not about removal of dirt but is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are identified with Christ. You believe in Jesus for your salvation. Being His brings you safely through. Because we know all people on the earth will either be united with Christ in His being baptized in the wrath of God for them, or they will be baptized in God's wrath in the lake of fire themselves. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. So your baptism is a sign to all those who would seek to destroy you, they're real, they're out there, and they hate you. The principalities and powers, the evil that traverses the air, you're telling them, I belong to Jesus. I'm united with Him. You've been identified with Christ, and you're going into the waters of judgment and coming out again to new life. 
You are crucified with Christ. You are His. You've been washed and cleansed. Not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not of your own, but His righteousness given to you. Your baptism points to all the Son of God did for you. So why is all this important? Why does our author present us here with so much typology, so much we couldn't even touch on a fraction of it today. We just had to follow the text. Amazing. But why does he present us with all this typology? Well, Peter's proving the Messiah. He's proving it. These prophecies are fulfilled. You can trust it. He wants his original hearers, and us to understand that Jesus is all in all. And he is demonstrating to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the shadows and types. And he goes about doing it. All that was typologically predicted by the Old Testament in Jesus, they find their yes and amen. As was said at the outset, these truths prove our faith in Jesus, our Messiah. These typological validations strengthen us so we can know that we know that we know. And how could that not change you? Jesus says, all in the law and the prophets testify of me. And again, Peter goes right about proving it. To his audience and to all of us today. And these are those deep, wonderful truths that sometimes we must work harder to understand. But once understood, they change us. They solidify us in our trust in the Word of God and Jesus the Messiah. He's saying, you can be certain that Jesus is the one of whom all the law and the prophets point to for all these reasons. You can check off more of your boxes of validation. As Enoch told the wicked in Sheol that judgment is coming, you will stand safely with the greater Enoch as he carries out that judgment on those brought up from the pit Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And when we walk out of this barn, we tell the world that judgment's coming. Because wrath precedes grace. It's coming when Jesus splits open the sky with eyes like flaming fire, wielding a rod of iron, a rod of iron, to smash mouths and break teeth, the teeth of the wicked. And with it, he will bend every knee. And they will experience their own baptism. The full wrath, anger, fury, and indignation of the Almighty God as they are cast into the lake of fire. The waves of fiery judgment will crash over them and they will be submerged in the depths of torment. This is the baptism we deserve. But our baptism corresponds with being brought safely through the waters of death, safely with Jesus and coming out on the other side. Everything that Jesus has done as the greater Adam, greater Enoch, greater Noah, we take part in. We benefit from. And our identification with the greater Noah brings us safely through these fiery waters of judgment to come. As Noah stood safely on the ark with all those that belonged to him, and watch the wicked consumed by the waves, 
so too will you stand safely with Jesus, whom you belong to, as you watch as the lake of fire consumes the wicked. Peter closes this chapter with one of the most comforting verses in the New Testament. Verse 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he's saying, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. All of it's his. Everything is his. Peter wants his readers, as we already discovered, who are in the midst of suffering, as he's writing, to let all this truth seep all the way down into their soul. He works to show all these shadows and types being fulfilled in Jesus. He shows us the typological fulfillment of the greater Enoch and the greater Noah in this text and all that means for those who are his. He shows us our baptism and its unification and identification to Christ and that we're set free and safe from the wrath to come. He reminds us that Jesus has conquered and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. And as he sits there, our life, your life, is hidden in him, in God. We're raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. This is a present, ultimate reality. The victorious king is on his throne. And he is crushing all enemies under his feet. And everything without exception is his. You are safe. He is in control. And because you know that it's all true, because you know who he is, well, we go forth and suffer well. And we'll hear more about that next week. Let's pray.